Welcome to our small group series, The Life of Moses. If you're interested in joining a small group, please visit waterstonechurch.org. Join us as we explore Life of Moses, the story of the Lord drawing His people out of slavery and into a relationship with Him. As we hear God's voice from Sinai this morning, Jesus be with you. Before we dive into the Exodus text, hear from Moses. Just a reminder that God's given Waterstone a vision to be a growing movement of transformed people, reshaping the culture to reflect God's heart. And one of the practices that we make a rhythm in our lives is to neighbor. Neighbor means that we're uh, attentive and mindful of our neighbors. We pray for them. We engage with them in conversation because relationships unfold one conversation at a time. And then thirdly, we invite them to events at church, to our Alpha course. Pray, engage, share. Well, I want to remind you of an upcoming day on the calendar that's very important neighboring opportunity. Halloween. What other day of the year do many of your neighbors actually come to your front door without being invited? This is an amazing opportunity to neighbor. So I want to challenge you, Waterstone, two things. First, give the largest and most candy bars on your street. Make it memorable. When kids come to your house, they bring their friends next year. I mean, do it big. Second, and this is subversive, when they come to your front door, Pray for them. You know, not out loud, not putting your hand on their heads or anything like that. But God, show your favor to these kids, to this family. God, bring the light of Christ to this child, to this family. Bless their parents out on the street as they're walking by. Use this as a night of candy and ministry. Are you up for that? Can we do that together? Make this a very memorable Halloween. Thanks. If you have stories, anything that happens, um, send them our way. We'd love to tell these stories sometimes. Anything that big that happens that night because we're praying. Hey. Hey. Rules are in. Did any of you hear Chris Pratt, the great actor who's a Christ follower, his nine rules that he told to an MTV audience when he won a generational award? Most of them come straight from the Bible. Or how about a guy I've been hearing a lot about, some of you are reading his stuff, Jordan Peterson, Canadian self-help guru. He has a book called The 12 Rules, so 9 to 12. Uh, there's the book cover, An Antidote to Chaos. There, I'm not going to read all these. Go to the last one there, Mode. Whoop, other way. Rule number 12, pet a cat when you encounter one on the street. Ah, he should have stuck to 10. Um, rules, rules, rules. Rules are in. Except perhaps when it comes to Moses, to Sinai, to 
God giving us the rules. When God goes up, or Moses goes up to meet God, gets the rules, comes back down, those rules have kind of created a valley of decision from the mountain. On the one side, you have people who are saying, wait a minute, God thundering from Sinai, giving the rules, people afraid of him. Haven't we evolved as a race past this idea of fear-based religion? Why can't religion be love? Why can't Christianity be love? Why do we need Sinai anymore? One side, the other side of the valley of decision is, well, of course there's rules. Rules are in. We all need rules. Why? Because if we can keep the rules and become a good person, then God will accept us. That's really the basis of most every religion. Keep the rules, be a good person, God will accept you. So you either have no rules, love, or you have all rules to get love. Moses comes to us from Sinai this morning and says, both of those approaches to law are simplistic. Let's talk about the purpose of the law. We come to the section in the book of Exodus, chapters 19 through 24, that are about God giving us the Ten Commandments, the rules of life. And this morning we want to ask, what is the purpose of the rules, the law? And we're going to talk about three purposes. They're in this topic sentence in Exodus 19. Let me quickly highlight them so that you'll know where we're going and be able to track along this morning. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, God says, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, here's the first one. You will be my treasured possession. The purpose of the law is to help us be God's treasured possession. Secondly, although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests. The law helps us be a kingdom of priests. And then thirdly, the law helps us be a holy nation. Treasured possession, kingdom of priests, holy nation. That's why God has given the law. Now, we start there, but first, a preamble. Not a ramble, preamble. We need to talk first about what the purpose of the law is not, okay? First, we see this in the macro structure of the book of Exodus, the timeline. What's first, what's second? First, the Passover and the Exodus. God saves. Second, Sinai and the giving of the law. First, salvation. Second, This is how safe people live. That's very important, as they say in the real estate market. Location, location, location. We see it in the macro structure. We see it in the micro structure. Back to our text in Exodus 19. Look again at verse 4. You yourselves saw what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Carried you brought you to myself, God saved. Then, if you fully obey me and keep my covenant. So there's deliverance and then demands. There's relationship 
and then remedy. There is carrying and then there's commands. My point, the purpose of the law is not to save. The purpose of the law is not to get us to heaven. The purpose of the law is not to help God love us. He's already done that. Passover, Exodus, he's already saved. And then after he saves, he says, and this is how saved people live. So hold on to that. The purpose of the law is not to save. Now, I remind you again, even though that's the Christian view, that's the the view of most every other religion is the total opposite of that. That you do keep the law in order for God to love you. That's actually, I would argue, the default position of the human heart. I think that's how many people live who've not yet met the grace of God in Christ. They're hoping they're good enough. They're trying to keep the rules. And in doing all of the rule keeping, they're hoping, they're just hoping it's good enough and that God will accept them. The Christian view is a different view and what makes it distinctive from every other religion. Well, if the purpose of the law is not to save, then what is the purpose of the law? Three purposes. The first one is that we would become a treasured possession. Now I remind you again, he's talking to people he's already saved. But he's saying to his saved people, but I want you to to keep this law so that you'll become a treasured possession. What's that mean? Well, let's start with the word. In Hebrew, the original language, that word treasured possession means a unique collection of a king. So you remember from your days living in a monarchy, maybe not, the king owns everything, right? The king owns the roads, the king owns the animals, the king owns the houses, the king owns the people. He owns Everything belongs to the king. But there were certain things that brought delight to the king for which he would build houses and garages and palaces and and complete buildings to keep personal collections. Uh, Years ago, my youngest son Luke and I, we did the trip of a lifetime together when we went to visit the World Lego Headquarters in Billen, Denmark. I'll show you pictures. Woo! One day... We had some free time in an afternoon and Lego offered this trip we could take to see a castle not far away that used to be owned by a king of Denmark. Amazing tour and we're walking through the castle and all of a sudden we come into the king's hall. And it was in the king's hall that there was a very special collection. Stuffed animal heads. I guess you can tell I'm not a hunter. I think they're called trophies. There were hundreds of them on this long hall on the walls. And I'll never forget Luke saying to me, Dale, this would be a terrible place to eat because everything's watching you. (laughs) That was a special collection of the king. That was the king's delight. What the law is given for is that we find how to be the king's delight. It's given to help us have a mutual relationship of intimacy with God. 
It's interesting, when you come to Exodus 20, when the 10 words are given, by the way, I'll just tell you right, sometimes I call the 10 commandments the 10 words. That's how I've known them for a long time. The rabbis used to dissolve each command into one word, and that's how they memorized the 10 commandments. So they're often called the 10 words. When you come to the first word, and here's how it starts in Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, first word, you shall have no other gods before me. Now as you're reading this, you're thinking, slavery, Egypt, get to the rules, get to the rules. Why this history lesson? Well, I think God is making a point. The point is that when he saved Israel, he heard their cries out of their misery, his heart connected to their heart, he responded, he came down, he saved them, and at the end of all of that in the Passover Exodus, it's Exodus 15, the great song that the people sang, God made them sing. They were so full of joy. So God's now saying, look, I saved you, I made you sing, now reciprocate. Make me sing. Do you know what makes my heart sing? You, my saved people, being people of integrity, justice, and love. Be a wild thing. Make my heart sing. Respond to me. Make my joy your joy. My delight your delight. Now, we know. We've had this experience. Have you ever been in love? Most of you have. Remember when you were in love? Some of you are, um, boom. <laughs> when you're in love, what do you do? Don't you research what the other person likes or doesn't like? And then what? You do that. You do it. Not out of coercion, out of love. Their delight becomes your delight. Their joy becomes your joy. You find your joy and your happiness in their joy and their happiness. When Jan and I first started dating, my favorite article of clothing was a polyester leisure suit. (laughs) And a silk shirt. And I was John Travolta, John Travolta. Jan comes into my life. She captures me. Leisure suits, she says one word. Nope. (laughs) And they start disappearing from my wardrobe. Willingly, by me. When, When you are in love, your joy is harnessed to theirs. That's what God is saying by wanting to make us his treasured possession. We find our joy in his joy, our delight in his delight. We are researching the things that make him sing, and we do them. That's a treasured possession in the king's hall. Now, real quick, I want to drill down just a little bit further because I think it's really interesting how the law does this. That is, how does the law build intimacy? Just go with me a little ways here. I I think this is fun. First, 
The law builds intimacy between us and the king by helping us understand the world around us. If you take the Ten Commandments and you compare them to every other law code from the ancient world, there's a stark contrast. Very different. Most all the other law codes from the ancient world, like Hammurabi, they're all about keeping the ruling power in power. They're all about class structure. They're all about economics and how we're going to stay on top, the ruling power. You compare it with the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments are a defining of reality. Think about it. Four of them are how to have intimacy with God. Six of them are how to have intimacy with the human race. The Ten Commandments are purposed to have the human race love each other. Why? Because at the center of all that is human is a God who is love and who's made everything. The Ten Commandments are about how to love in a moral universe. There's a stark contrast. And so I would submit to you, that's the reason they've lasted. They've endured. They're as fresh and vital to healthy government today as they were when they were first uttered in 1440 BC. Now, just think about that for a moment. That is a rather uh, good thing for the heart to know that God speaking absolute truths is defining reality. In fact, I would say that's one of the things that woos people to Christ and to Christianity. I was reading a interview by a man named Jonathan Tarks who writes for The Ringer, which is a blog about the National Basketball Association. And in this story, Jonathan tells how the Holy Spirit brought him to Christianity. The first part was that he was really convinced that science had the answers. And so for a number of years, Jonathan Tarks, a really intelligent man, he just immersed himself in what the leading scientists were saying about creation in the world and how we got here. And to his kind of disappointment, he discovered that while science has told us amazing things about how the world works, scientists themselves are still guessing about how it all started. In fact, Tark says in one place, it's an article of faith not to believe in a creator as much as it is to believe in a creator. That was step one. Step two was he turned to history and he started reading about the history of Christianity. Here, here's his own words. Uh, if we go back, the more I studied the history of Christianity, the more I saw how it validated Christian theology. The first Jews were slaves in Egypt. They eventually escaped to the Middle East, the crossroads of the ancient world. They were a minor tribe compared to the Assyrians, Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, and Romans. They should have disappeared from history like the Philistines, Midianites, Canaanites, and every other smaller tribe from that period. Imagine going back in time and telling this to the pharaohs. They would never believe you. I began wondering whether the Jews really were worshiping the creator of the universe. The third part of his journey was that the Holy Spirit just radically broke into his life, which is usually the case because the Holy Spirit is the ultimate convincer. My point is this. You have to reconcile in this world why the Ten Commandments have endured. I would submit to you it's because they speak an objective truth to a hungry heart. But the heart is hungry not only for objective truth. The heart's also hungry for subjective truth. Every person in the world, see if you agree with me, the basic need of every person in the world is to be known and loved. Every human heart wants to find themselves 
their picture on the global refrigerator of the God of the universe. They want to be known and loved. You know, uh, 1977, Jimmy Carter was running for president, or was president. NASA was in kind of its peak uh, highlight glory years. And one of the things they did was send uh, a spaceship called the Voyager into space. Voyager 1 and Voyager 2. In fact, you can go on the NASA website still today and see how far away from Earth they are. They're still functioning. And the whole purpose of the Voyager was to find how far the galaxy extends and to see if there's life out there. And so what they did in order, in case there was life out there was, you may remember this, they put a record. It was called the Golden Record. Now, for some of you younger folks in the audience, the record is like a CD or, or a, a download. But on this record is greetings from many languages around the world. It's a sharing of the human experience, and there's music on it. The last piece of music on it is Beethoven. Opus 130, Katavina Movement. Annie Druyan with Carl Sagan was assigned to decide what message the human race from planet Earth would give to the galaxy. This was the end of it. Here's why. The first thing, Annie, I found myself thinking of was a piece by Beethoven from Opus 130, something called the Cavatina Movement. When I first heard this piece of music, I thought, Beethoven, how can I ever repay you? What can I ever do for you that would be commensurate with what you've just given me? And so as soon as Carl Sagan said, well, we have this message and it's going to last a thousand million years. I thought of this great, beautiful, sad piece of music on which Beethoven had written in the margin the word Seinsucht, which is German for longing. Part of what we wanted to capture in the Voyager message was this great longing that we feel. The human race is longing to know that they are the special treasure of God. The law. The law gives us what our heart wants. Objective truth, what's going on around us. Subjective truth, what's going on inside us. But the law does one more interesting thing as it builds intimacy with us and the king. It also shows us how our heart works. If you go back to the 10 commandments in Exodus 20, the first commandment, God spoke these words, Lord your God brought you out of Egypt, out of slavery, first word, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, it was Martin Luther who said that in that first word, all the other nine words roll up. You could stop reading right there in a sense because every other sin has its seed planted in the first word. In other words, the reason we sin, the reason we choose our own way is because we are having another God before God. Whatever it is, we take God off the ruling throne of our heart and we put, and it's usually 
And this is what makes it challenging. It's usually a good thing. We put on the ruling throne of our heart. This is what we live for. Family, work, money, sex, power. Whatever it is, we put it there. We move God out of the ruling power of our heart. That's the sin under every sin. The law shows us how our heart works. Let me illustrate. Do you struggle with busyness? Do you overcommit? Do you wear yourself thin? Do you you have no margin in life? Have you ever diagnosed that? Take a deep drill down. What's going on there? Could it be that the reason you are struggling with busyness is because you have another God in place on the ruling throne of your heart? Could it be that there's a sin under the sin, the problem under the problem? Could it be that you crave human approval more than God's approval? You want people when they see you to be impressed with how much you can get done or you are so busy because you just can't say no. You don't want anyone to be disappointed in you. Whatever it is, there's a ruling power in your heart, a sin beneath the sin. You have another God. How about stinginess? I'm sure if we did on Introvert Sunday a show of hands, we're not going to do this, but all of us in this room would want to be more generous, I'm guessing. All of us at times feel we have so much Why don't we give more? Why don't we give till it hurts? Why aren't we radically generous so that it costs us? Let's diagnose. Could it be that the sin beneath the sin, the problem beneath the problem, is that we really highly value security, pleasure, status more than we value God? How about lying? Have you ever diagnosed your struggle with lying? Why do we lie? Could it be that in that moment, sin beneath the sin, problem beneath the problem, we value something more than God in that moment? The law helps build intimacy by giving objective truth, subjective truth, and telling us how our heart works. Helps us diagnose so that we can have through directed obedience, more intimacy with God, to delight in what he delights in, to find our joy in his joy. So that's the first purpose of the law, to build intimacy, that we could become a unique treasure with God. Second purpose, back to Exodus 19, is that we become a kingdom of priests. Priests, what's a priest? Well, Moses is a great example in Exodus 19. What is Moses doing? He's taking the problems of the people up to God and he's bringing the words and presence of God down to the people. A priest is one who creates an experience with God. Now, we're to become a kingdom of priests. We're to be people who who help people experience God. Jesus said the same thing, by the way, in Matthew chapter five, when he said, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town or city built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same 
same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, I think most of us, when we read this, we think, yeah, I get that. So a priest, we are to help people experience God. So in my individual life, what I'm supposed to do is be light, you know, do the things. I'm saved, so I live to save lifestyle, and people watching my life will, will experience God, right? No. I mean, it's in the mix. It's, a, it's an implication. But let me ask you something. Can you be a city by yourself? Can you be a kingdom by yourself? These texts are not talking about you as an individual. They're talking about us as a community. Here's where people who grew up in the South speak the biblical language. Y'all are the light of the world. Y'all are the salt of the, I can't even say it right. Uh, Y'all. Would you not agree that we live in a fractured culture, mean-spirited, polarized, angry? The world, our culture is hungry for a place, for a community, where people who do have differences of opinions on politics, uh, different genders, different racial backgrounds, different economic statuses, where people come together from a diversity of places, but yet because of a common mission to, to love the world and to love God, are brought together diversity to unity. The world is so hungry to see a place where that can exist. And do you know where they should find it? Waterstone Community Church, Hills Bible Church, West Bulls Community Church, Southern, the church should be a place where people of diversity come together in unity to fulfill Jesus' prayer in John 17, Father, may they be one as you and I are one. To fill David's prayer, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. The church should be a place where we are learning to love one another in our differences. And that would be an exposure of God's holiness and love to the world. So can I ask you something? Are you in on that? You can't be a kingdom by yourself. You can't be a city by yourself. Some of you, your involvement at Waterstone is you come once or twice a month, you sit here, you hopefully get a good word, do some singing, that's the extent of your involvement. I know I'm being blunt here, probably stepping on toes, but you gotta stop dating us. You gotta get involved. How? Get into a small group. Get into a men's group, a women's group. Uh, uh, we have a Explore Waterstone class coming up in two weeks. Go to this. Emily will, will tell you everything we have at Waterstone that you can become part of a kingdom of priests. And I remind you of this. At Waterstone, you know, we pound small groups. The reason we pound them is not so that you get into one and get fed. We hope that happens. Yeah. 
Do you know the reason we pound small groups? Is so that you get into a group, even with people you don't like, and learn to love them. Why? Because the world is watching how we love one another. A kingdom of priests. So join a group so that you can serve and live an other-centered life. God gives us the law to build intimacy with him. God gives us the law to build intimacy with one another as the world watches. And lastly, God gives us the law to be a holy nation, distinct, utterly different nation. Now, what's interesting is historians tell us that around this time, 1440 BC, maybe 500 to 1,000 years earlier, the first human cities started to develop. And uh, what was interesting, they had two common features, the early human cities. They built walls for protection, and in the city somewhere, there was always a mound or a mountain or a man-made mountain called a ziggurat. The reason is because the wall was for military purposes and protection. The mountain was for religious purposes. Most every ancient city had a mountain on top of which was a temple, and you worked yourself up that mountain and if you get to the top, you ascended, you, you, as it says in uh, the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, if you can make a name for yourself, God would meet you there. Here's the contrast. Here's what makes a holy nation. When God wants to build his city, a light on a hill, what does he do? You don't have to work your way up. He comes down. He sends Moses down. He meets the people where they are, saves them, brings them into relationship. Do you know what makes us a holy nation distinct and utterly different? Grace. Grace. When the distinctive of your community is grace, it changes everything. You walk into a room totally differently. You know, when you have been accepted by God, his opinion of you is the only opinion that counts. So when you walk into a room, you don't have to go fishing for other verdicts. God loves you. He's accepted you. So you can walk into a room not asking the question I think our culture always asks when we walk into a room, how can you enhance me? People who've been transformed by grace walk into a room the same way Jesus did. God, how can you use me to enhance you and you and you and you? That's the whole purpose of the law is to teach us how to enhance one another. Let me illustrate briefly. Let's take the driving forces of our culture, sex, money, power. What does the law have to say about sex? Well, the adultery commandment, don't commit adultery. Do you know that's the first time in human history that a law code given by God says that not only women should not commit adultery, but men are also accountable for their sexuality? 
first time. Uh, money. Nick preached a great sermon on money f- a few weeks back. It's on our website if you'd like to listen to it. But he made this point. Every year in Israel, you had to give 10% off your income to the worshiping community and to care for the poor. 10%. But every third year, you had to give another offering. If you prorate it, every year, every Israelite had to give 23.3% of their income to the worshiping community and the uh, poor in the community. That is radical generosity. The law speaks to sex, it speaks to money, it speaks to power. Israel, unlike most every other nation, was to be a welcoming nation. If you wanted to come and meet the God of Israel and worship him and join in our community, we welcome you. Remember, you lived in Egypt. You know what it's like to be a foreigner and an outsider. You should have empathy for the foreigner and the outsider. So come, worship God with us. Do you see how the law is turning its people into other-centered people and breaking down all of the, the, the cultural sins about sex and money and power? It's teaching us how to move towards one another with grace. The law teaches us to be channels of grace. So real quickly, what's your channel of grace? Have you found a compelling mission that you would give your money to and your time? I want to remind you of an upcoming seminar. It's going to be an amazing time. Next Sunday after the service, our immigration seminar. Maybe you would want to get involved in in the immigration crisis that's going on in our culture. Remember, a few months ago, we surveyed all of you, and you said, what's going, we said, what's going on in our culture that you'd like to know more about? You said immigration. Here you go. Next Sunday, we'll have pizza, and stay after the second service, and we'll hear what the Bible has to say about immigration and how we can get involved in being a channel of grace in a difficult challenge. So, the purpose of the law is to build intimacy with God, to build intimacy in a community, and to build intimacy with our world as a channel of grace. So let's see how Israel responded to it, shall we? In Exodus chapter 24, we get to the end of the section. Then Moses took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. (laughs) Right. What they should have said was, sometimes, sometimes we'll obey. What they should have said was, well, there's some parts we like and some parts we don't like. Really, everything, maybe for an hour. So Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words, blood. Now, we think, wow, that's weird. Moses sprinkling blood on the people? You need to understand, don't take your cultural prejudice to their culture. In our culture, how do we affirm a covenant? We sign 6,000 pieces of paper. In their culture, the way they affirmed a covenant was they would take an animal, cut it in half, and they would walk through 
the halves together, which meant it's an, an, an oral culture that it's on pain of death I will keep this covenant. By the way, don't you think if we had something like that in our culture, we'd be a lot more faithful as a people <laughs> rather than just signing a paper? It's on pain of death. If, if I don't keep the covenant, you can cut me to pieces. Well, the problem is we don't keep the covenant. And God sent his son to be cut to pieces, to shed his blood, sprinkled on us so that our sins, mistakes, and failures do not block the intimacy we have with God. The writer of the Hebrews puts it this way. In Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. You see, because Jesus came, he walked up that hill. He died in our place for our sins. He took our penalty so that we could become the treasured possession of God. Some of you, you came in this morning your heart is still under the old system, under that default condition. You're trying to keep the rules. You're trying to work hard. You're actually trying to manipulate God into thinking you're a good person. I beg you, take your eyes off yourself and look to the hill that Jesus climbed to lay down his life to wash away your sins, to rise again, to promise you life after death. Come, come to Jesus. Let's stand together. A fitting way to end our time this morning before we sing it would be for us to acknowledge that we too want to keep God's law. We know it builds intimacy. We know obedience is important. We know all this, but we continue to fall down. So let's confess. If any community in the world should be a broken and confessing community, it should be a Christian church. So we confess our brokenness, but then we receive the assurance of pardon from Jesus Christ. Join me. I'll do the leader you are the people. God of love, in the wrong we have done and in the good we have not done, we have sinned in ignorance. We have sinned in weakness. We have sinned through our own deliberate fault. God spoke all these words. I am God, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt 
out of a life of slavery. No carved gods of any size, shape, or form of anything whatever, whether things that fly or walk or swim. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Work six days and do everything you need to do, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to God, your God. No murder. No stealing. No lusting after your neighbor's house or wife or servant, or maid, or ox, or donkey. Don't set your heart on anything that is your neighbor's. Moses spoke to the people, Don't be afraid. God has come to test you and instill a deep and reverent awe within you so that you won't sin. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of, that is subject to death? Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Let us proclaim this together in song. To learn more about Waterstone, please visit waterstonechurch.org.